What's up, good people? This is Jeff Staple from The Business of Hype. As you might know, we're on a brief hiatus right now. We're researching, gathering, and fine-tuning all new episodes for Season 2. We'll be back in a few weeks. But you won't really miss us, because each week we'll be sharing new episodes, new tidbits, and little nuggets of edutainment. That's uh, education and entertainment, in case you're wondering. Yeah. So uh, one of the episodes we're gearing up for is an AMA show, Ask Me Anything, where you, the listener, can ask me anything you want, and I'll answer them on the air. So send your questions via email to questions at businessofhype.com, or you can tweet them to me. I'm at Jeff Staple. And make them tough ones, because easy questions are kind of boring over the air. Oh, I mentioned this last week, and I'll say it again. Tell a friend about the show, please. Subscribe. Tell others to subscribe. Tweet it. Instagram it. Yell it from your rooftop. Tell everyone. You'll actually look smart. And also, leave a comment on iTunes if you can. Because the more feedback that's given on iTunes, the more likely it gets featured on iTunes. And the more it gets featured, the more financial support we get. And the more financial support we get, the better this show gets. So please, give us a shout. Thanks. Now, in case you didn't know, this show, The Business of Hype, is part of the Hypebeast Radio Network. Well, it's sort of a budding network right now. There's only two shows, but more are coming really soon. So along with my show, there's the main Hypebeast Radio show, which is hosted by Ben Rosen and Madrell Stinney. They're almost 50 episodes in, and their show's really cool because it uncovers some of the freshest talent that's cropping up in street culture today. They've interviewed the Spaghetti Boys, Eric Emanuel, Kevin Poon and Edison Chen from Clot, William Strobeck, and more. Actually, they've interviewed me, too, before I even started the business of Hype. So definitely tune into that episode. But this week, what I wanted to do was share an episode from their show that is one of my favorites to date. Everyone who's listening to this podcast probably understands a bit about the culture of reselling sneakers. It's incredible because what started out small in a cottage industry has basically grown into a billion-dollar monster. As one of the leaders of the resale game, Stadium Goods, what they're doing is absolutely amazing. If you've ever been to their store in downtown Manhattan, you'll know it's a retail mecca for footwear. And the reason why I love this episode in particular is because my friends Yu Ming Wu and John McFeeters are interviewed. They're the partners and co-founders of this amazing business. And this episode is great for any footwear and sneaker fan, but also any aspiring entrepreneur as well. In fact, I'm actually kind of jealous I didn't get to them first. So sit back and enjoy this episode from Hypebeast Radio. I'll talk to you soon. Take it from here, Ben and Madrell. Driving the closer forward, this is Hypebeast Radio. I'm your co-host, Madrell Stinney, with... Ben Rosen. We're sitting down with John McFeathers and Yuming Wu of Stadium Goods. How's it going, guys? Good, good. Good, good. Awesome. So, um, yeah, you guys are celebrating your two-year anniversary. How is that? Pretty exciting, man. It's uh, It's been wild to think about those early days and what they were like versus how far, how we, far we've come in a very short period of time. Um, you know, two years is obviously a lot bigger than the one year, but... Our team's gotten bigger. We've we've got a, a lot of good things happening, and um, just really grateful to have come this far. Yeah, I was just sharing some pictures with the guys last night. You know, day one, uh, we were talking about like pulling all nighters. You know, just getting yeah. you know all hands on deck kind of stuff, uh, leading up to the opening of the store as well. Um, you know, just everyone putting all this energy behind it, and now to today where we have just a really big staff. Uh, we celebrated last night with a lot of them. Um, yep. 
So it's kind of like to remember, you know, go back to day one, day zero, and leading up to uh, day one of the store opening. That's it's been an insane ride. Yeah, and talk about like you know just that that uh, growth since you know the startup. I mean, like Palace is down the street now. BBC is also down the street too. I'm sure like that's helping with the foot traffic. How has the culture changed? Yeah, I mean. It- I think a lot of changes have happened from a retail standpoint. And granted, I mean, so 90% of our business is online, but the, the 10% of retail has is, is gotten to be a lot better. Early days, there wasn't much traffic on the block. There wasn't that much going on. And there was just vacant spaces mm-hmm. everywhere. And I think we we got really lucky on a couple fronts. You know, it uh, having BBC come first, opening up that spot right at the end of Howard, right on Mercer, and then Palace coming shortly thereafter, it's night and day from a strip standpoint obviously opening ceremony has always been right over here rick owens has come as well there's a hotel at 11 howard that opened a good restaurant called nickel and diner that opened right here i mean it's, it's night and day different from what it was those early days when we were here building out the space um so i mean it's been wonderful i also think from a cultural standpoint um sneaker culture just continues to get more and more mass which drives a lot more interest and, and helps everyone grow in our space so um, that's a big part of it but early days were pretty scary I was, I was telling some stories last night yeah. around like the first day we launched the first week we were in business the first month we were in business and um, definitely took some fortitude to, to keep it rocking and getting to where we are today what, what are like some of your favorite stories from like those early days you know I, I think um, we did really well and got a ton of press on open and there were a lot of people that were interested to see who we are and what we were about obviously we had we had a store that looked great and and a lot of good content in the beginning but that doesn't necessarily translate into transactions i think when a lot of people think about starting a business they're like oh you flip the switch and it, you're off to the races and that's mm-hmm. not really what happens okay. it's a much slower cook mm-hmm. like we did very few orders on our opening day even fewer orders on our second and third day in business and it's kind of it's not that it's necessarily a surprise, but you just have to really double down and focus on what you're doing, building out your craft and back against the wall, making it happen, you know? Yeah. So talking about business, I, I feel like in New York City, you know, being someone that's not from New York City, that you see so many like boutiques or like just startups where you can just go and find like a space or whatever and, and purchase it and like become a business on your own. But a lot of those places don't last for that long or they just only have the space for just like six months or so. Yep. Um, can you talk about like, you know, how can you maintain a successful business so that you do remain like, you know, in business? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of different things. I think the one part is that you have to try a lot of things that are sort of risky. Some of them are going to be failures. Some of them are going to be wins. If you kind of have a bunch of tests running at any time, that's going to help you get to a much better place. Um, I think a lot of people think with businesses, you can kind of set it and forget it. And that's not what it is. Every day is a grind. Every day is like a new challenge. How do you get more people in the store? How do you get more people on the site? How do you get your name out, present it the right way? to a bunch of people you know I think one of the things that has guided us and we talked about this last night at our at our party um, even though we've come a long way in those two years mm-hmm. in a lot of ways it feels the same it's still the same fear and anxiety and, and motivation we still have a lot to prove we still have a long way to go um, the emotions are the same even though we're in a much different place I remember I was reading some of the press from like the early days, like you said, where it was like, you know, uh, it was when you guys got the like investment at the beginning and also kind of when you told people that you were doing a brick and mortar thing. 
And, you know, I think it's interesting now, like we've seen a lot of more of these things crop up since you guys opened up. What's been the experience of being like a resale retail kind of thing in downtown New York? So I think part of our growth, and I'd love to hear what you make thinks about it too, but resale aftermarket, when I feel like when we came in, had more of a stigma than it does today. And right. that, that's not necessarily only because of us changing it. I think a lot of things have happened to change the nature of what resale is. It's not as dirty a word as it once was. We see ourselves as retail innovators. Mm-hmm. The way that we get the product might be different. The way that it comes to us might be different, but we're, we're, we're trying to impact traditional retail and do something special in traditional retail. Mm-hmm. Um, with that in mind, it's all about merchandising, service, presenting the right storyline to people that they can understand who you are. I think early days, we, we, when we talked, I think Yuming was going to be more out front. I was going to be more behind the scenes. I never really planned on being out in the open, mm-hmm. but people need to get to know who you are mm-hmm. to want to do business with you. You can't really, I mean, me, Yuming, Jed, like we're out there. We're all talking to people. We're all pushing the brand forward. And that's, mm-hmm. that's part of what we do on a daily basis. And you mean, you know, John brings up a good point that, you know, the term resale isn't such a dirty word or has has a negative connotation to it these days. You know, coming from like an extensive sneaker background, like why do you think that is? Well, I mean, it's 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 always this, you know, talk about how, you know, all these guys reselling to make a profit. But, you know, you, you come to think about it, it's 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 normal people just trying to make a living. You know, it's like if you can't find a job, go resell. Uh, you know, like I was, I was uh, randomly watching a Facebook video last night. It was uh, Gary Vee, and he was talking about like, you know what? You could go to down to the dollar store. You can buy some of the stuff for a dollar and resell it on eBay for five. You know, that's that's a real deal. You know, if the hustler you, mentality. That's that's the hustle. You you gotta like, don't ever say you're broke. Don't ever say like you don't have any money for anything. Like if you can't make rent, you got you gotta do something for this stuff. So I, I always like valued. Uh, you know, I. I I came up reselling. Right. You know, I got through college reselling, so it's not like, you know, I, I really value uh, the industry uh, of. Actually, there's no industry, but I really value the ability. The to community, actually, almost, right? Uh, yeah, the ability to resell. So, I've never seen it as a dirty word. I always, you know, anytime I talk to people, I always say, you know what? If I wasn't able to resell, I wouldn't be here where I am today because I wouldn't be hustling on this level and be able to kind of make. Uh, make some early pocket change to kind of get me through college and get me to where I am today right. you know without the without having the ability to kind of make money that way because you know like you can intern you can do all this stuff you can find a job you can work go work at McDonald's or whatever you want to do but if you want to kind of really grow something you got to start somewhere and right. re- reselling anything not just sneakers is one way to do it. So I really do not see it as a dirty word. I really see it as one of the most valuable things that anyone can do because you're learning how to, you know, run a business on a very small scale. Yeah. The other point that I think gets overlooked a lot of times is that if you take every hot shoe mm-hmm. that sells for a higher price in the in the aftermarket, if all that stuff was available anywhere you wanted it retail and you mm-hmm. could find it on every street corner, then no one would want Exactly. That stuff. Supply it's, and demand. There has to be uh, a supply and demand mechanism to mm-hmm. to drive a lot of the hype. And it's why the, the brands play into it. They do. Like, they, yeah. they need to keep that hype machine going. That's mm-hmm. in a lot of ways where they get all their PR energy, their, 
their brand energy. It's an important part of the, the footwear industry in general. Mm-hmm. And I like going back to what you Ming said, I think that like one of the cooler parts about the resale thing is that fashion kind of does have this like barrier for entry for so many people where it's like, you know, fashion school costs a lot of money and whatnot, and it's really hard to get in. And I think that resale, like you were saying, if you needed, you know, extra scratch when you're in college, if you needed rent money or whatever, like once you're done with college, you can literally use this as a way of kind of learning how the fashion industry in a way kind of yeah. works, the business side of it, especially. Exactly. Because yeah. I think that that kind of is still very opaque from the outside for a lot of people. Like they have no idea how that supply demand mechanism yeah. works. And the easiest way to get kind of like a face first exposure to it is to literally be on the front lines and kind of going for it and taking L's every week to yeah. learn from them. <laughs> Taking L's is the operative. You're taking L's no matter what. Yeah, <laughs> you figure Literally, it out. Like yeah. you were saying, like the first three days, yeah. it's like, yeah, you're gonna take a couple L's. Yeah. But you have to stay low and build with them, and then you know the next week, who knows? Yeah, I mean, picking up from the you know the, the having value in, in resale and having value in sneakers, it, it's really without that value, there wouldn't be this sneaker industry. Right. You know, everyone thinks about it as a dirty word, but you know, it's same thing with comic books, baseball cards, uh, anything collectible, even vinyl toys. It's just plastic. You yeah. know, like oh, vinyl, uh, you look at rubber, you know, it's, we're looking at cotton and rubber or, you know, whatever the, the yeah. new technology is. But without seeing a value to any of, this, any of the things that we have, there isn't really a sense of, you know, who would be like having, who would have a community about sneakers if they're, you know, you can just go down and pay like 50 bucks for a pair of sneakers and be like, you know, you just wear this and, you know, that's what you know, way back to the Converse Keds and those days were. Right. You know, we're in such a great era that there is an art form, you know, I always talk about the art form of, of uh, sneaker designers and that's exactly what it is. It's an art form that you're buying. You're buying into this uh, mad genius of, of Tinker Hatfield or right. like, you know, um, some of the new designers out there, you know, doing Yeezy, Boot, uh, NMDs, uh, LeBron 15, which is amazing. And all, all of these amazing looking shoes versus Keds chucks. Right. So it's kind know? of like where it goes from like utilitarian, everybody can wear it every day to literally becoming almost like a sculpture. Like exactly. how, that's like what Virgil that's Abloh what, would You know, that's it. what I consider mass produced sculptures on your feet. Wow. So you look at the same thing. You, I, I just bought uh, the, the new Cause toys. They're 280 bucks. Honestly, it's, 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 honestly, it's a, uh, it's probably so, like, you know, 15, 10, $15 worth of plastic, but you just pay 280 because Cause is a genius and he's just that amazing that you want to own this piece of mass produced sculpture. Same thing. It doesn't do anything for anyone except it just sits there. I mean, my cup is as much of a sculpture. It can be like as much of a, a statement if I put it this there, but you can have this cause thing and you're like, man, this, this you guy know, is amazing. I, th- I think the cause stuff is a good example. I, I think there's not enough product in the world for people to actually be excited about. <laughs> so when you're kind of going through your daily life, you see something that's like this shiny blue cause toy. You want to have it on your mantle or on your windowsill or whatever, you know? I. For, for people that have been in the space for such a long time, there's, there's not that many things that happen that really drive our excitement level. So when you see something, you want to go after it. We're all consumers, you know, so that that creates the chase. Yeah. So um, let's, you know, just for context, let's talk about your guys' background. Like, how did you both get into sneakers and how much has the sneaker industry changed since then? Um, so I, I, I always say I've, I've been in the sneaker industry a lot longer than I ever planned. I don't think I 
woke up one day and was like, yo, sneakers, that's the move. Like, it just kind of ended up here. Mm-hmm. Um, in some way, shape, or form, I've been in the business for a while. Uh, the first real interaction I had with it was working with the Flight Club guys and getting to know some of that side of the business. Um, I've worked with a lot of different retailers over the years. I did a stint at um, Team Epiphany, a marketing agency. I was there for three and a half, four years, and we ended up uh, running Nike Social Business um, at a time when that was a really exciting space to be in. You know, took it from a, 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 very, a couple bodies to like a pretty big operation where we were doing stuff on Instagram, Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, you name it. Um, that helped me a lot to understand what you need to do to pitch and present to large brands and more of like a corporate setting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also feel like I learned a lot about how to communicate, how to present stuff from a content standpoint. Uh, at some point I left that and went back into like the e-com retail space, did more stuff there. Um, I was lucky, I, my par- one of my other partners, Jet Stiller, he, uh, he and I were part of a retail startup. It was like a side project that um, early days of beacon technology tracking mm-hmm. for retail. Um, that company late 2014 it sold to Groupon we kind of had a nice little event around that and it gave us a chance to both leave what we were doing and kind of figure out what we wanted to do next Mm -hmm. Um, and that was when we decided stadium was the move and I went talked with you Ming and then that's when it all began awesome Um, my my, um, I started in probably like 2002 Um, I was in college like I said, I was reselling, not sneakers. Um, I just had to kind of make ends meet. Yeah. And um, one day I just, this, I just like caught reading, I think it was New York Magazine at that, at that point. Flipped the page, saw A-Life, saw a pair of sneakers in there. I was like, these are amazing. I gotta figure out where I can get it. I went to A-Life, they didn't have it anymore. So I was just asking around looking for them. And I was introduced to like a bunch of people in at college in, at Parsons School of Design. And one of the girls actually sold me that same pair. It's the Atmos Air Max One, the Safari ones. And from that day on, I just like I just started researching, researching. And in 2002, there were no blogs, no internet, no I'm sorry, no Instagram, no social of any any kind. So you really had to dig. Um, the only place that was really available to people who were into sneakers was Nike Talk, um, Crooked Tongues, and and um, a few others. But there was just so such a limited amount of resources at that point i just really spent a lot of time discovering learning and, and all that stuff and eventually just one day said you know what i, I it's got to be something better there's got to be something i can do to kind of spread some of the knowledge i've, I've uh, discovered um, and from that day on i just started building at that point i uh, started building an idea it was called freshness uh eventually you know that's Right after I graduated, I partnered with one of my buddies in college, and we started as you know, try to do it as a business. Mm-hmm. You know, in 2003, the word blog had really just come into existence, and but we kind of just kept doing it. Uh, after a year, I, I realized I had to find a job. One on Craigslist saw an ad that says, "You know about LeBron, Kobe." Um, you like basketball, you like sneakers. And I was like, oh, that sounds like me. I applied. <laughs> wait, wait, that, that, that job posting was on Craigslist? I was on Craigslist. <laughs> Someone like targeted that specifically yeah. for you. It was, a, it was amazing. I applied. Turns out it was an agency called RGA. Oh, no um, way. It's, uh, you know, they're, they're Nike's um, digital agency of record. 
because of my experience, you know, in this learning about this culture and building freshness and you know all that stuff, I was hired to uh, run uh, Nike Basketball Digital. Uh, it was amazing at the agency side. So I spent uh, three years there, basically building NikeBasketball.com from ground up. You know, back in the day, it was all these flash-based experiences and. From that day on, I realized that you know what all this kid wants is a pair to look at sneakers. So we made sneakers a hero, and from that day on, the whole Nike digital landscape really changed a lot. Sneakers first. Sneakers first, instead of you know digital experiences around an athlete first, which no one really cared about. You looked at it once, and you ne never go back. The the brief was, how can we get kids back here multiple times a day? To check in, to check in, and stay on the website. But for that longer. brief kind of kept, you know, kept. I kept it in the back of my mind, and from that day on, I realized this. You know what? We. I need to figure out how to get kids back to my website on a daily, and I realized that freshers might not be it. And around the same time, you know, Hypebeast also launched, and I said, you know, these guys do it a little bit better than I do. I got. I have another idea I want to do. Uh, it's called. I, I. I actually purchased a, a domain called Sneaker News. I was like, I, I know people want sneakers. So I launched the, uh, I left RGA, uh, I rejected a job at Nike, and I, um, bold, <laughs> uh, risk bold, but yeah. you know, it's, it's really, I, I told myself there's a lot more rewards to doing, doing your solo. own thing. Yeah. yeah. Being able different personality fully type. control what I, I can do instead of letting someone else control. Of course. Uh, obviously, it was a great job. It was like the uh, global digital director for Nike Sportswear before they launched. But yeah. obviously, I, I saw a much bigger opportunity and potential in, in, and, and, in, in, with outside of you know covering this stuff. So right. I mean, that's past that. Eventually, you know, that one one thing led to another. You know, I eventually started doing SneakCon and then, you know, through my friendship with uh, Coltrane who runs Team Epiphany, I met, I met John and um, I know about Jed through his uh, other business, uh, uh, Greenhouse and WIP. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'd also known uh, John's wife for quite a few years. So just that this close circle of friends brought us all together. You know, it's not that big of a community, but, you know, we all share love. We all have very similar friends and you know it's really about the friendship that we've kind of made through the world of sneakers that allowed us to also get into business together yeah i mean yeah. there is a lot to be said about the fact that like no matter how large like this the sportswear industry is it's like the community of people that are like sneaker heads is so tightly knit because I feel like there are a lot of the same names that are brought up and and you guys are within that now yeah. you know and I, to go back to something you guys said earlier, like um, I think a lot of people, you know, come to New York, they'll come to Soho, they'll go to the store and they really kind of, you know, they'll experience it there. But like you said, the bulk of the business comes online, like 90%, I think you said. Yep, 90%. So that's still the bread and butter? Is that still like the lifeblood? What has um, been well, the digital approach? In my mind, a big part of retail is about the content, the presentation, everything. That 10%, I mean, what we do in the store drives a huge chunk of the rest of the business, you know. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of live broadcasting, we do events, we do photo shoots, we we get a lot out of the store. And I think especially over the next year or two, I, we're definitely going to open more doors. Like I'm bullish on retail, not like ever 50 new doors, but I think we do it in very small, curated, kind of like step-by-step -step approach. It's all going to help build the greater brand as a whole. Um, I think especially as traditional retail is having a hard time as... You know, even on this corner right here where we are, all four corners are essentially vacant. All flagship spaces are vacant. The actions, 
Action's on the side street. It's on Mercer. Um, it presents a lot more opportunity to do exciting stuff in retail as rents are coming down, as spaces are vacant, as you can do pop-ups more easily. You know, um, in my mind, it's a good time to be doing stuff in retail. Yeah. I also think, like, I really like what you said because I think there is sort of, like, if you looked at like Broadway and Mercer as like a as like a metaphor or whatever as a microcosm, it's like you think like you said the flagships, the high street stores are all kind of like American Apparel closed down. You know what I mean? Like all of those kind of like mainstays are gone, and the real cult following is for like the lines outside of you guys, the lines outside of Palace, the line is outside of Opening Ceremony when there's a Yeezy drop. Yep. So is there something where you think that like these smaller, more niche, community-driven brands are probably like? experiencing this boom and kind of like pushing out the bigger brands or what's the phenomenon? I don't think they're pushing out necessarily. I think that people want stuff that's special. Yeah. You know, like if I buy a pair of socks, I want some special socks. You know, I'm not, bu- I'm not buying, I mean, granted I have some like regular Amazon Hanes socks mm-hmm. in the drawer. It's not all like that. Wow. But, but I, th- I think that when people see something that's unique and special and it has more of a story behind it, something they can, either talk about or get a little excited about, it makes people want to buy something. And that those large flagship corner spots that are just kind of pumping out pure mass product without any of that thinking, it's not really what it used to be. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a time where people would flock to an American apparel and buy tons of stuff and you'd have like a closet full of basics. But I don't, I don't think that's really where a lot of consumers are at, especially in Soho, you know. You're coming here for that culture that's off-Broadway a lot of times. I mean, there's still a lot of tourist traffic on Broadway, but I think a lot of people that are really from here are part of the culture. They're not shopping on Broadway. Mm-hmm. With some key exceptions, you know, obviously like a Uniglo does tons of really fresh stuff and they're on Broadway, but they've really dug in with cultural elements. Yeah, I think... Through designers and uh, artists. Yeah. Like, they're speaking a language that fits with the language of today. It's I would almost just, th- say that they've done a really good job of seeing like the things that are popping on the side streets and yeah. then like you know what maybe jw anderson might be a good a good look or cause yeah cause yeah like literally a lot of the people that we've name dropped have collaborated with what is ostensibly one of the bigger you know fast fashion retailers but they've done it in such a way where it's like it feels tasteful it feels special like yeah I, I also think that a lot of it has to do with speed to market larger companies are the slower they are to move a lot of the opportunity that we have in general is because we run lean you know, we could, we could make a decision today and implement it in a week. A large company, it takes a lot longer to get something out. So people that are really shining and they're seeing a lot of success have been able to take that same mindset of a fast approach to getting things done so they can hit something on trend when it's hot. Right. Not the kind Six of... down the line. See it on the Marshall's closeout shelf, you know? Um, I think that's a big part of it. Not not only in the U.S., but internationally as well. It's like, how fast can you do it? If you see something as an opportunity, the longer it takes, the more people are going to seize that opportunity before you do. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, bringing up a good point that, you know, that been that been brought up um, about, like, the stores here in Soho that are getting a lot of foot traffic are the, like, you know, the smaller community-based stores, like, for instance, like, your store, Supreme, Palace, etc., um, where it's becoming, like, a landmark for people to come and whenever they're visiting New York, for, uh, more specifically, like, celebrities. Like, you guys get a lot of celebrities that do come through the shop. You've also done stuff with DJ Khaled. I just wanted to get your opinion, like, you know, on celebrities getting footwear signatures these days. It seems like there's a lot more celebrities that are getting their own shoe versus, like, athletes that are getting their own shoe. 
I, a couple different things you could say on this. I, I think that kids today have gone entertainment. They're not mm-hmm. as into sports as they were. I'm sure there are a lot of kids that are into sports, but kids that are into popular culture, it's more of an entertainment thing, which mm-hmm. means it's artists, it's maybe even influencers that aren't artists, a lot of musicians, not as much athletes. Like a, a big athlete doesn't drive quite the same swell and trend that yeah. that they used to. I, mean, I think it, a good case study for that would be like how everybody likes, LeVar, or not likes, but is all about LeVar Ball versus Lonzo yeah. Ball. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. like a case study right there. Yeah. I mean, you, you can you can see him all over the place. Like uh, I think one of the reasons why Adidas has done so well in the past couple of years mm-hmm. is that they've really embraced entertainers um, super aggressively. Obviously, Kanye was at Nike first and he's at Adidas now, but beyond that, you've got Pusha T, you've got Pharrell, you've got Tons Storm of artists, yeah, yeah, that they that they dial up, and it, it it speaks to where kids are at today. Like they're on Instagram, they're listening to music, they're doing all sorts of stuff. They're not watching the game the same way that our generation was. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are a lot of kids watching the game, but it's not the same from a cultural standpoint. Yeah, do you have any thoughts on that as well? Yeah, I mean, it's it's like a fan base thing, you know. It's it's all these artists that have fan bases. You know, we look at Rihanna; she caters to a women crowd. You look at Drake, you look at Kanye and Pharrell, and all these guys. They they really drive some of this stuff. Uh, it's incredible for them to really be able to do what they do today. Uh, but it's the same thing. It's like LeBron's got a fan base. You know, he does sport, sure, but these other people also do sport on some level. Yeah. Uh, you know, as Kanye says, uh, he's playing himself one-on-one a lot of times on stage. So that that is very, very true. Yeah. You know, they're they're on their feet, you know, like, so it's, it's actually quite amazing that uh, all these companies are recognizing who the right people they should really work with are. It's, it's almost like regardless of the medium of what they're doing, it's like if they can pack a stadium, it's like you can probably sell some of the people in that stadium some shoes. Like, I think that... You go to a concert, I, I went I went to the, the Future Drake show at the Garden, and literally, the number of kids you saw wearing the merch they had just exactly. bought, mm-hmm. that's night and day from like a decade ago. Exactly. Like people might afterthought buy something on the way out to give to their kid or some, back then, but now people... Lines, Wear it right there. Buying it, throw it on, be in the show with it. The whole crowd is wearing merch. Like, that's a much different person. I remember last year when I went to the Meadows Festival. I think you were there as well, Madrill. I think the, like, the most noticeable thing was that it was like every single person, every single person in that crowd was wearing a Kanye West t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Like, it, was, it wasn't a brand. It wasn't, it wasn't any, and, there was, and the line to get that merch literally stretched to the turnstile to get into yeah, the crazy. festival. Like, the show started... Everyone's out there performing, and kids are still waiting online for the merch. Yeah, they were yeah. there for the merch over the performances yeah. sometimes because you can tell like they want to go to stadium goods the day after with those t-shirts, man. Like that's, I mean, it's a come up. Like, how much yeah. was a ticket to the to Meadows? Like a hundred bucks. You're not wearing five. T-shirts. How many t-shirts? Yeah, exactly. How many sweatshirts do you need, man? How many sweatshirts are you leaving this concert? Yeah. So, in terms of like um, captivating like the culture at the current moment, which sports brand, in your opinion, do you think like is doing the best job of, of that? That's a dangerous question. I, I think everyone's doing a great job at certain things. Um, I think that you see, you always see ups and downs mm-hmm. with, with brands or silhouettes. Um, but people at all of the major brands are very smart and they have great insight into what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I think um, right when we opened about two years ago, it was at this point when Jordan had definitely oversaturated the market mm-hmm. and kind of 
had a rough, I would say a rough 12 months after that. Um, and they've done a lot to pick it back up, drive a lot of excitement, kind of changed some of the, the nature of their releases. You know, you never really know what's going to happen in business, but you seize your opportunities, you grow where you can, and then you deal with things when they go another direction. Similarly, like Adidas, over the past two years, they've done a lot of exciting things. Um, one, of, one of the things I really believe, having, having sold a bunch of sneakers over the past two years, there's a lot of interest in new silhouettes. When Nike releases a new Vapor Max, it's like, wow, this is some hot shit. It's a really cool style. People want to get into it the same way as an NMD or an Ultra Boost. Retro is in a lot of ways where sneaker culture came from. Mm-hmm. A lot of those really legacy old styles. I was like an old runner guy. 95s, 90s, 97s. That's generationally, I think the kids today, they want something new for their generation. And, and that's why a lot of these new styles that you've never seen before are driving a lot of that heat and hype. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's quite interesting. Do you, do you see like, you know, for your store that a lot of newer releases are selling at a higher price point than, you know, releases than shoes that were like released decades ago? Yeah, I mean, in some, in some cases, definitely. You know, I mean, I wouldn't say all because mm-hmm. it's, there's a lot of, there's a million little one-off cases in, in what we sell, but... Yeah, NMDs, Ultra Boost, Vapor Max, the the ten off white yep. shoes, Rihanna Creepers. You know, yeah, Rihanna Creepers, Rihanna Fenties. I mean, the got military sneakers. Like literally, yeah. I mean, I think it is. Yeah, I think a lot of what these brands are struggling with is finding that sweet spot between like nostalgia and novelty. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about where we're at today is like, so you take ninety sevens as an example. I mean, this year has been. Oh, I've literally bought. <laughs> 30 pairs of shoes. That's like my go-to. And I'm thrilled that that's, that retro story is still strong mm-hmm. and relevant and it matters. I think it's about a mix and a balance. I think what happened was the pendulum had swung way too far in the direction of retros. Mm-hmm. It can't be all brand new stuff because then people don't really have the reference points. It's got to be somewhere in the middle. You got to have a good amount of retro styles, things to kind of keep that legacy alive. Mm-hmm. And then you have to have new exciting styles to to bring new things to the market and innovate word i've been to that uh the back door so to speak of, of stadium goods and i was wondering what is the legit check process like like i know quality control is crucial for you guys but what is the you know we're, we're lucky to have some really good people that have been doing it for a long long time some of the guys there have a decade plus experience validating shoes mm-hmm. Fakes 10 years ago look a lot different than fakes today. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, scary. it's very scary, but at the same time, it's all about education, mm-hmm. staying versed in what's happening, knowing what changes in counterfeits as new styles come out, new, is it, whether counterfeits get better. The other thing is that a lot of times quality from brands declines. So you've got quality of counterfeits that goes up, quality from the brands that declines, and definitely makes it trying, but... Thankfully, we have some really good people, and we stay on it, and we, we teach ourselves, and we, we train, and we that's a big part of what our focus is mm-hmm. as a brand. Yeah. I yeah. wouldn't, I wouldn't, I don't want to go through the whole list. I was going to say, I was but like, how much of the sauce? The thing is, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's different on every shoe, you know? Yeah. Like, someone can open up a box and smell it and be like, wow, this is not right. Mm-hmm. You know, which is, sometimes well, that's what it is. smell test. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes it's paint sometimes it's laces sometimes it's something labeling on the box or the insole or whatever this there's towels all the time right so it's i mean thankfully i don't have to do that myself because I don't, I don't i don't know all those things but yeah, yeah. I, mean, I mean no matter what what these uh 
uh, counterfeiters do, there's just no way for them to really legitimize their process. Yeah. You know, they just can't invest the millions and billions of dollars into the correct factory procedure, the QA, yeah. all that stuff. Research to get and it development. to a point where it's, it is the absolute perfect uh, replica. And when that happens, they basically made a real shoe. Yeah. But yeah. there's no way for them to do yeah. that without it, investing the it, amount of money that they have. And the, the other thing is that, so if you're Nike and you've got God knows how many factories pumping out products, mm -hmm. there's a lot of variation in output. Right. Yeah. Right. So there are certain shoes where the fakes actually look like higher quality than the real ones that come from the brands. Yeah. And there's no there's no way they, they can no matter how hard they work, they can't ever get it to match exactly because mm -hmm. you never really know what the brand's output is gonna be. Gotcha. So I got a question. Then how do you stay safe when like, you know, for instance, in an, an upcoming release and you're starting to see like leaks of those shoes or just people with those pairs like in their hands beforehand, like, you know, oh, what are you doing that? Ones. Exactly, with yeah. the whole off-white collection or for instance, the Easy Wave Runner 700s where you're already seeing people in pairs when they haven't really shipped them out yet or the off-white collection when it didn't release yet in full and you're seeing people with pairs early and they come into your shop, like, what do you do then? Look, the it takes more on that first pair when you get it to, to know that you're good good money. Like, obviously, there's, there's, I think one of the things that's very unique about stadium goods, there's a lot of relationships behind it. Like, with Supreme, for example, we don't take Supreme from the general public. If you have a shirt that you want to sell and you want to walk in, you're not, we're not taking that because a printable t-shirt it's a lot harder to there's not a million tells, tells on, a, on a screen printed t-shirt true um on those first pairs it means that we're i mean we're diligent with every pair we get but we really look at those early pairs we understand where they came from we understand the story behind them we understand kind of comparing that against a million different reference points in the digital world um i mean we we do a lot of diligence on those early you put pairs. them under the yeah. microscope so yeah because so i mean you have to but at the same time 99% of the time, that first early pair isn't from some random guy walking in off the street that we've never seen before. It's from someone that you built a relationship yeah. with or no? Now for legit check the person. Yeah. <laughs> check the person. <laughs> we legit check our people. Yep. And this is more of a state of the union, bigger picture kind of question, but you know, recently with Supreme kind of selling a 50% stake for $500 million, I guess sort of the question becomes, how does that news sort of trickle down for you guys? Does that, what does that mean for the resale market as a whole in your perspective? You know, I've been, I was asked this question a couple of times. I'm sure you've been asked this question a couple of times too, but I don't think it really changes anything. I think that Supreme is arguably the best company in the entire world at curating demand for their products, keeping that tight supply. I don't think very much changes. I think looking at who invested in them, I'm, I, and who knows what, what's going to happen, but I think a lot of that's going to go to retail expansion into markets where there's tons of demand already sitting there for their products. Um, I don't know. It's, it, I don't think it skips a beat. I think it's just, it, it's a great indicator of, of how things have changed in our world. Yeah, was it like a validation? How, it, how the rest of the world and the investment community and, and large corporations view what's happening on off Broadway yeah mm -hmm. um, so it, to me it was it was very exciting yeah same I, I have the same thoughts about Supreme and, and their uh, investors I mean it, it's it's just them being that smart you know they've been incredibly smart up to, until this point 
and for them to take the investment it doesn't mean that they're gonna like fully sell out you know like it's them being able to collaborate on a very high level with a company like Louis Vuitton and also you know what sure they collaborated with this big massive company but at the same time were you able to get it not really you know and is that product really expensive it is it's it's just that high of a caliber for 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 these guys for pride yeah yeah so you we're not gonna really see like you know supreme all of a sudden like appear at urban outfitters oh, you know uh, you know like that's what happened with stussy and I, and they kind of like pulled it all back you right. know that the, the, the APC guys as well yeah look there's a bunch of it's, it's funny it, talking about vape as an example vape is doing really really well but there was a time where they kind of jumped the shark they flooded the u.s market it was like down in the dumps and then it kind of came back heavy mm-hmm. after they got a handle on it you know they jumped the shark hoodie yeah it it, it was if anyone can can handle it it's going to be supreme they can right. kind of take that and continue to grow by raising the bar doing more sticking to their model you know yeah, and they're constantly surprising you with something new you yeah. know it's like what are we going to get next a table we already we already have a table you know like you know we're going to get it, it's guitar. just yeah, yeah it's, we're going to get a guitar we're going to get a tv motorcycle gonna, you know is it going to be a supreme iphone yes. you know at what at what point but but at the same time you you, you realize that based off of what they do and how they're going to release the product even if they make an iphone it's not going to be like at every billion apple you know apple store whatever i'm just making it up but we, we know for a fact that these guys are just so intelligent in terms of how they run their business that you just won't see them fully oversaturate the market. Yeah, and speaking of valuations of like, you know, markets, like for instance, the sneaker resale market is said to be like over, worth over a billion dollars. I think that's very conservative, yeah. personally. You think it's higher? Um, I mean, so in, in my mind, the way, the way that we look at the business, the athletic footwear market in the world is argued to be at an $85 billion value. That's including retail and brands and million things that are taking place. Wow. I think that idea of what... So I, first of all, I think that number's low. Yeah. Seeing how much ground we've covered mm-hmm. in two years proves that that number's low in my mind. And so it, there's a much bigger market there for what is aftermarket. The, the way we see it is more impacting the greater market as a whole, mm-hmm. whether it's traditional footwear retail direct-to-consumer footwear retail, the way footwear brands interact. Like, it's... I don't, I don't see that bucket as, mm-hmm. as being relevant to where we're going and what we're doing yeah. necessarily. Mm-hmm. Do you think the valuation is higher or lower than, like, you know, how much the sneaker industry is, is making? Um, I mean, I think it's different. Like, I, I think we're enabling commerce and yeah. we're a part of the larger commerce conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people see that, and that's why we... we have investors and a lot of people in our space have investors yeah. a lot of people that are kind of chasing this idea of what it's going to become mm-hmm. it's not necessarily based on what it is now yeah um so I, I and i think it's changed a lot in the past couple of years that we've been in the mix but so would you say that business is definitely like doing well though for yeah. like you know okay so that that being said like what do you think is going to be the future for like stadium goods or other like consignment shops um i mean i think you'll see this move this consistent trajectory of us getting more and more into what looks like traditional retail mm-hmm. into what that space is whether it's more doors whether it's customers that are just buying products from us whether or not they think of it as resale or aftermarket or whatever they're buying pairs of shoes we're selling shoes we have something that they want mm-hmm. they're coming in they're buying it like the whole idea of marketplace consignment 
doesn't really matter to the end consumer. They see something they want, they it's buy product. it. Yeah. I mean, it, it all goes back to what we talked about earlier about value, you know, having us uh, be able to be one of the drivers of value for people who think about sneakers. You know, without the drivers in the market, there wouldn't be an $80 billion a year business in terms of athletic uh, footwear, apparel, and all that stuff. You know, it is really same thing with Supreme. If there's no value there, why are they worth so much? Why are people yeah. fighting to get their stuff? Uh, and it, it's really just that. It, it's really like us being able to continue to help drive a lot of this value for a lot of these people. You know, I still go out there and I'm not like, you know, this super cool kid who can just go get anything. Like I'm having a hard time getting off-white or, or Jordan 1s. Yeah. What I'm going to do, I'm going to go to Stadium Goods and I'm going to buy them pair in the aftermarket because I see so much value in that. I really want We'll get it. you a good price. <laughs> But it's it's the same friends and family. <laughs> friends and family. It's the same thing, you know. Like we we look at uh, we, you know, and I'm still a really big consumer. I'm going out there. Doesn't matter which marketplace it is. I shop on eBay quite a bit. You know, it's if it's not at, at Stadium Good, I'm not on eBay buying things. Like if I can't buy, get the Stone Island Supreme jacket, I'm you know that's what I'm gonna have to do because yeah. you know what you just I don't I want something that's I can't get at Uniqlo. Like right. if I if I was a regular guy, I'm gonna go in there and buy a puffer jacket for like 80, 85 bucks. But I just paid significantly over retail for something that I saw value in. You know, one of the one of it's kind of like one of the ugly underpinnings of instant gratification. You can't not have something you want anymore. Like for a lot of people, it's like if you have that fixation in your head, it's like man, I need that. I need it. It's just itching. Yeah, you know, you've got it. You, yeah. Only way to, yeah, you, yeah. There's that, and there's also collecting. Yeah, you know, we we haven't talked about collecting. You know, there's there's people who buy it for wearing, then there's people who buy it for collecting. There's certain things I just buy strictly for collecting. Bear bricks. I will never ever put it on my feet or bear bricks or cause toys or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. uh, some of this stuff, like I bought all these cause toys, I never even put them out. Mm -hmm. But at some point, I bought this uh, thousand percent bear brick from way back in the day. Uh, the um, Dissected bear brick, bought it for six hundred bucks. I just looked on eBay yesterday. It's like four thousand dollars. So it's really it's just like material investments too. It's literally like people that are like they'll come into your guys' store and be like, "Man, that's a really cool Supreme keychain." And then four years later, that thirty-two dollar keychain is you know. Actually, that's exactly exactly uh, another thing we didn't talk about is investing. Right. You know, there there's a lot of things that people can do. What, whatever hustle that you have, whether it's reselling product you buy at the dollar store, reselling sneakers, reselling Supreme, or you, you buy things to really invest in. There's people who invest in stocks and there's people who invest in streetwear and sneakers. Uh, I've done all of, the, all of the above and some of it's paid out really well. I um, recently, uh, I, I, I bought a pair of the Parapata Air Max Ones way oh, back man. in the day yeah, for yeah, yeah, yeah. $1,000 because I couldn't get it at retail. I was like, man, I just paid a thousand dollars for this pair of shoes. I sold it last year for forty five hundred bucks because yeah, someone yeah. really needed it. He's like, I really need it, and I was like, I want forty five hundred bucks for it. He's like, sure, <laughs> let's do it. And but but that's the that's the that, that's kind of it doesn't happen every day. You know, a lot of it is really just you know you're just trying to make ends meet and 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 really that does go back to the point that I made where it's like I think that fashion industry or even if you were to look at like stock market stuff it's like the gate the barrier for entry to get into the stock game is probably around the same as a thousand dollar pair of shoes relatively yeah. speaking yeah. so it's like if you can invest a thousand dollars into 
anything and it values up to 4,500 in the course of, I don't know, three years, four years, whatever it is. Yeah, I, I, I've messed around in the stock market very, very little. Like yeah. I'm, I'm a like small time investor. Like I, I, I purchased a hundred shares of Facebook at 16 bucks. Done well. It's 170, 72 dollars now. So you know, like that sixteen hundred dollar invest investment has turned into a really significant. And it's one. just that people look at it when you spend sixteen hundred dollars on a pair of sneakers, like you're a crazy person, exactly. and then they they can't really see the fact that it's like same actually thing with my, go on eBay. Yep. Same thing with my thousand dollar investment in the Powerpod Air Max Ones. Yeah. yeah. And there are times where that investment doesn't work out. Exactly. It's not a hundred percent. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. It's it's you have to know what you're doing you have to be smart about it you have to diversify have a bunch of things going on if, you, if you're gonna get to exactly, that end result yeah. but yeah it does work out as a vehicle same way stock market if you know what you're doing and you congratulations you, can, you don't need to go to an office yeah, job you, you can you can also get really burnt yeah yeah same time. It's, like, it's, it's so back to our conversation about like you know earlier or at least what i was talking about like you gotta really hustle if you want something better for your life you know you don't want to live in the hood you want to live in a nice apartment in, in manhattan you can actually, there's guys who have, you know, whether it's uh, the, the, the street guys selling like, you know, uh, dollar hot dogs or whatever it is, those guys are doing really well for themselves, but they're hustling. They're standing on the street. It's not glamorous. You're not like, you know, working at Hermes with, you know, nice suit and stuff, but this guy's probably making the same amount of money as the, as the homie at Hermes selling the floor managers. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's really comes down to like we're making living, making ends meet, paying rent, getting by, moving on, and, and, and enjoying life at the same time. So when people tell me it's like yo you're you're ruining the game, I was like, okay man, but you know what? I got here because I needed to hustle. I needed to pay my college loans, and I needed to pay my mortgage, and I needed to kind of just live. So at this point, it's it's really like don't complain to me about you know uh ruining the game by reselling i'm going to continue to hustle and resell so i can get to the next level and right. you know do something nicer you know have a nice vacation that i didn't have to pay for yeah. yeah i think that's a good transition for usually when we're kind of coming toward the end of the episode we like to ask people if you could give advice to a younger version of yourself like to kind of guide yourself what would you tell young Yu Ming and young john as like sagely advice from the future. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. I actually, uh, yesterday, someone invited me to teach a high school class in entrepreneurship. It was, so I did, it was like 45 minutes. I had the deck. I was talking to a bunch of high school seniors. And I was like, what, am I, what do I want to tell these kids? Mm-hmm. And there, there was a lot. I think I talked a lot more than I thought I would. I was, I was lost for a long time. It wasn't, I didn't really get my bearings, I would say, until I was about 30 years old, which... Some people, 22, 23, they know it, they're on a path. I kind of figured it out late. Um, but for me, it's always been about just going as hard as possible at what you want to do. And then if you realize that you're on a failing path, pivot and go another direction, you know? Like, I've, I've, I've tried probably like six, seven startups at this point. I've had a bunch of failures, a lot of little side projects, a lot of little hustles. I feel part, part of like why we're winning now is because we put ourselves in a position where we there was no option to lose like losing now would be horrible you know like there's a lot of fear that drives and that keeps you on a path um but yeah i think you got to try a bunch of things you got to find your way and and knowing that you're on the right path it's not an instantaneous thing it takes time to get on that right path to where you're really doing something that that you can be excited about 
Um, same exact, you know, what, uh, what John said. Um, I think I would tell myself to, you know, hustle harder. Uh, learn as much as you can. You know, I dropped out of high school, uh, went back. I dropped out of college for the first time, went back. Um, you know, it's, it's all part of doing things, learning, failing, failing again, and, and just keep failing and kind of continuously doing stuff. Uh, I, I think one of the, the things that I didn't realize that had helped me a lot early on was when I was 14, I was working at a sweatshop. I didn't think it was like, why am I doing this? But at the same time, I was like, Thank God I did that because it's, it's really taught me the value to the dollar. Yeah. Um, at this point, I, I really like look at some of the kids growing up today and I, I, uh, one of the things that was, you know what, just go find a job. Don't talk to me. Like I see parents that says like, I'm not gonna put my kid to work. He's gotta go to school, learn. And I'm like, you know what, put him to work. Yeah, I, I used to flip burgers. Like, I, I mean, I've, I've had a bunch of shit, shitty jobs. You know, I think there's this misconception as you sort of, as media, glamorizes the success stories and like the kids who just pop it off and get rich or like have like wow that that item that sells out really fast or they build a startup that gets acquired by a company in like a heartbeat that's not reality it seems like it is because you see it in the media every day the reality is that you're going to have to work your ass off and really make some shit happen if you want to get there and I, I think a lot of kids today they don't see that they think it's like they think that in three years they'll be rich sitting on a beach. That's not how it is. It's, I mean, we're, we're old in this game. I don't know how old you are, actually. I'm 38. Almost 40 years old. Yeah, so, yeah same. Um, it's, I mean, it's, I, I, I feel old. <laughs> We've been through, been through a lot, you know? Yeah. It's part of what gets for you here. over 20 yeah. years, basically. You know, starting when we are teens, basically. So it's like you guys, you don't buy the hype of like the kids that are like all of a sudden they sell a dad hat and they're on a beach. You know, honestly, I think there's a lot of intelligent kids out there. Uh, but even look at it, looking at Nick, you know, he didn't he didn't have a glamorous start. You know, he's worked at retail for years before he really got what it is. You know, he made his relationships. He, uh, Anti-social social club didn't pop off because he got he got like super lucky. A lot of it was it was luck because of relationship building through the years of working in all, all the different places that he did. And taste and knowledge and understanding of the space that you're going into and the kids that are going to buy your products. But a lot of people see that and they're like, I'm going to start a t-shirt brand. I'm going to start printing up t-shirts right. in my mom's basement. And then boom, that's it. Like it's a lot more to it. A lot more yeah. to it. A lot more story building. But also more. that's part of the hustle too. You have to try and you probably won't succeed. And then you do the next thing and you learn from the previous failures. I think that's probably one of the things that, you know, through John's story is about failing at different startups and, and me trying a lot of different things and eventually settle, settling on just one thing. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks. That's a really good note to end on, guys. Thank you so much for coming in, really. Thanks for having us. Stories and yeah. some wisdom with us. Thank you so much. Yeah, cool. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Good stuff.